This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello, I am Mark Borderstone, and welcome to The End of History, a monthly program presented by the Canterbury Socialist Society where we discuss the class struggle, contemporary unionism, economics and current affairs in order to promote working class history and socialist ideas as they apply to the 21st century. Kia ora koutou, no mai hare mai ki te hōtaka nei, ko The End of History, he mia kawe mai ki a koutou. Ngāti Canterbury Socialist Society, welcome to The End of History, a radio show slash podcast brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society. I'm Shannon Burns and I'm delighted to be back for another episode. As ever, I have a special guest to introduce and if I'm honest, this is a little bit awkward because I do know this special guest quite well. His name is Greg Burns and he is an Environment Canterbury Councillor. There was a lot that I wanted to talk to Greg about, and we got to most of it, I think. His childhood, his politics, what it's like to be a councillor for Environment Canterbury, affordable water reforms, and a whole lot more. As you'll hear me say in our conversation, there are some perils to talking to a family member, and they include the temptation to get a bit sidetracked. So this is a fairly long conversation, but hopefully one that is enjoyable to you, lovely listeners. So I'm just going to get into the conversation now. And after our conversation, you'll hear the song that Greg selected for you. I won't be back at the end of the episode, but I will be back next month. And I promise I have some extremely good resource reviews to share when time allows. In the meantime, you can head to www.socialistsocieties.org.nz to learn more about the Canterbury Socialist Society and also the New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies, to which the CSS is affiliated. And you can get in touch with us by sending an email to canterburysocialistsociety at gmail.com. A huge thanks to Greg. Thanks for listening. And until next time, kakite ano. Okay, so can I please get you to introduce yourself? Kia ora. Call Greg Burns Tene. I'm the father of the interviewer. <laughs> and I'm a Cantabrian born here in Christchurch and lived here most of my life, other than a near time when I lived in. Australia. Cool. Tell me a little bit about your experience living and growing up in Christchurch, but also maybe you want to introduce the role uh, that I'm interviewing you about. Yes, certainly. Um, So I was born in a Burwood hospital. Uh, My parents were renting in South Brighton. And in those days, which was fantastic, you could cash in your family allowance in order to be able to get a mortgage on a house. And that's what my parents did. Unfortunately, I was in a house of probably many Kiwis of my uh, age and generation would know, the six o'clock swill, so there's a lot of alcohol, violence, fighting, yelling. Uh, so I moved a couple of times. I was very fortunate that my grandmother had a house next to her own house uh, that my grandfather had built, so we moved in there. And But fundamentally, I attended Avondale Primary School, Chisnerwood Intermediate, and then went on to Shirley Boys High. When I was a early teens, I think about 14, um, my mother remarried and I moved out to Hallswell and I sort of lived there till I was about 21, 22, played a lot of sport, primarily rugby league out in Hallswell and um, interestingly enough, I still went to Shirley Boys High, I used to travel on the Midlands bus 
in from Hallswell to Christchurch, walked to the Cathedral Square to catch the Shirley bus, and you know that was, and then do the exact opposite in the afternoon. So it made for a very long day. Uh, background: I wasn't very academic at school. Uh, a lot of talking, a lot of hidings. Of course, in those days, they were allowed to belt you. So I'm certainly from a generation where the people that I uh, had as elders thought that spear the rod was to spoil the child. Do you want to tell me a little bit about um, your time in Hallswell then? And then maybe I'm trying to get to how you got into environmental work. Absolutely. Well, my grandmother lived in a house, but there was a nursery attached to it called Better Plants Nursery. And my grandfather, who I never met, he had died before I was born. During the Depression, started growing vegetables to feed the family. And um, he was obviously fairly successful. And he established a plant nursery. And that ran up until about five, six years ago when my uncle, who was in his 80s, finally finished working eight-hour days, six days a week when he got ill. Yeah. So I guess being around a plant nursery, plants growing, that type of thing, got me into the environment. But I'm also, again, of that generation where you got up in the morning and if you weren't going to school, you went outside. Uh, Where I lived, there used to be obviously houses now, but it used to be sand dunes and lupins and trees and we would be climbing and making forts and running around and just engaging with nature being kids. And then, of course, we wouldn't go back inside until it was dark. So that sort of got me into my, I guess, my enjoyment of the outdoors, just what everyone would probably consider to be an average Kiwi lifestyle of my generation. From there, I got an apprentice uh, apprenticeship with Christchurch City Council and um, as a horticulturalist, uh, I started at the Christchurch Botanic Gardens. It was a 9,000-hour apprenticeship, uh, and that was learning all sorts of things from, you know, formal horticulture, propagation, growing indoor stuff, outdoor maintenance, etc., basic tree surgery through to whatever it may be. And um, I guess that just made me feel like I was always going to be outside. I also, uh, as I earlier said, I wasn't very academic at school, so I always thought I was, I, I used the phrase, I left school because I thought I you know, was dumb and um, I was very fortunate to get an apprenticeship and that was kind of what I thought my lot would be. And, um, yeah, from there I've just sort of progressed through formal horticulture into probably more so when I was overseas, the natural world, if you like, and then once I engaged completely, I guess, spiritually almost, with the natural world. Uh, that's where I've been ever since, probably the last 30 years, I think. Yeah. You've said a couple of things that are interesting to me. You made me think back to another guest that I had on the show last year, Anne Daniels, who still is, was then the president of the New Zealand Nurses Organisation, and she actually talks about how she grew up with, very poor, but with parents who grew a lot of food and they were always outside. And so even though it wasn't a life of luxury, she says that she feels really lucky now to be of a generation where that was quite accessible to people. And now she thinks she was talking in the context of health about how growing your own food and that sort of stuff is much harder for a lot of you know lower income New Zealanders. Interesting that you said that. I don't know if you have any thoughts around that. Yeah, I do. And I think um, even our natural environment around Christchurch has changed so dramatically since I was a child. There used to be lots of orchards and there used to be lots of market gardens, etc. You know, this real green belt of sort of growing vegetables and, and fruit and, 
eggs and whatever it may be, and they were very accessible. They're actually quite cheap. And my mother, Aileen, she was right into, you know, pickling everything or making jams and preserves. And we were poor. We had we had a lock on the on the pantry door so that we wouldn't eat um, food while my mother was away at work. She worked at Wool, uh, Miller's Woolen Mill. So obviously uh, we had a very tight budget, but we had a garden. So we were always, you know, I, I regularly remember just pulling things out of the garden and eating them. And in fact, I had a couple of friends down uh, Ottawa Road where I lived and we made a regular habit of sort of jumping over the neighbours' fences. We sort of went from one end of the road to the other and we'd take grapes and peaches and apples. And I know that's probably frowned upon, but, um, (laughs) you know, it was sort of like, it's kind of just what you did. And I think nearly everyone I knew was like that. Yeah, I I would agree with your, your previous guest. It was one of those ones where necessity meant that you needed to provide some of your own fear to eat and it was probably a lot healthier than um, going away and buying stuff now. The other thing that I wanted to mention of course I know better than all the listeners listening that you know things weren't easy but again you sort of matured at a time where even though you left school and weren't confident in your academic abilities or whatever there were a lot of opportunities that opened up to you through work and through your apprenticeship. And I'm wondering if you can tell me, sort of maybe just briefly, but give me a bit of a sense of your career trajectory and so what you found yourself doing over in Australia and then when you came back to New Zealand. And maybe tell me, obviously I'm working up to, I'm aware you haven't actually said that, you're a counsellor for Environment Canterbury, which is why I'm interviewing you. So maybe you can tell me about what you've been doing, you know, over the last 30 years and then we can start talking about ECAN. Well, invariably, I have to go back to my childhood for that because with the nursery at my grandmother's, um, I did a lot of working there as a school child. And my uncle, who I was very, very close with, taught me a lot of skills, but he was always on about hard work. You worked hard. And as I've just mentioned, he was working uh, six day, eight hours a day up until his 80s. And that's just what he did. So he, he instilled in me a very good work ethic, I suppose, whether that's a good thing or not, I'm not sure, but it meant that I was a good worker, if you like, and um, yeah, that sort of stood me in pretty good stead. I also had the opportunity uh, straight after school, I, I worked on a fishing boat for a short period of time, I worked in a woolen um, store where you were, um, people were pressing wool, so I did a few little jobs like that before I got my apprenticeship, but yeah, like a lot of New Zealanders, going to Australia was probably the opportunity to find myself, um, I'd sort of got myself into a rut here in Christchurch, I didn't really think um, I had much of a future other than to, to you know, to be a gardener. Um, and I'm not criticising being a gardener because it's a very good part of my life. But yeah, I didn't see anything more than that. And um, I got to Australia and got a job at the local council. And apparently I was very good. And I, again, I think that was that work ethic. So all of a sudden I kind of progressed to sort of filling in spots when people were away. And very uh, quickly, I sort of became an area supervisor or what they call over there an overseer. So you had a team of about 15 people. And probably within about four years, I ended up becoming the parks manager. So I had a staff of around 90. And um, I used to, my then wife, uh, Siobhan, uh, we would almost, um, not so much laugh, but we would find the fact that I had 90 staff and was dealing in millions of dollars and yet I was only a gardener, uh, was kind of hilarious in a way. And it was probably that time, along with that sort of, 
you know, you, everyone has self-doubt. I kept thinking, man, one day these people are going to find out I'm only a gardener. But clearly, uh, as I've got older, I've realised that being a gardener has in fact made me a really, really good strategic thinker because you're having to think across seasons and years and all sorts of things. So yeah, that sort of lent me uh, very well. I've always been a very good speaker as far as uh, not being shy to have an opinion or engage with people. In fact, that's something I really enjoy doing. So, you know, engaging with lots of community groups and the likes while I was over there gave me a lot more confidence about who I was as a person. And I finally thought, look, I need to make a a crack of some sort of tertiary education. So I enrolled in the Sydney Institute of Technology to do a diploma in business administration. And I can still recall the first paper I put in. I didn't pen because we didn't have a computer or anything like that. And, you know, beautiful handwriting. I think I had to write it out about five times, but put it in. And I got an A minus. And, you know, I walked up to the lecturer after I'd received it. And I was going to kind of say, I think you've got my paper mixed up with someone else because I was really surprised to do so well because, I, again, mm. I never really had any confidence in my ability to do that. Um, so I'm from a working-class family. Um, my father was a boilermaker. His father was uh, skilled uh, as a pattern maker. But generally, you know, working with the hands, uh, we, you know, working for New Zealand Railways, for example, and I think you either have two things going for you. If you have a family that's a really solid unit, you know, um, they can aspire for their children to ever go to university because it would be something really, you know, outside of the norm. Or you sort of follow one of the family mm. traditions. And that was actually the case with my brothers. I have two brothers who are twins, younger than me, and they're both boilermakers who did the apprenticeships at New Zealand Railways out at Addington. So, yeah. You I sort guess, of did neither. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, you're the black sheep of the family. Yeah. Uh, yeah. By becoming a gardener. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> well, interestingly, um, my brothers are both keen and avid gardeners in their home lives and have often said to me how working in workshops with heavy uh, machinery and noise and grime has taken a toll, even though I think they're three years younger than me. I, I wouldn't say I'm, you know, more sprightly, but certainly working outside has been a lot healthier for me rather than those sorts of environments. But um, I guess I'll progress to why I'm a counsellor, but uh, I came back to Australia married. My eldest daughter and son were born there uh, in Sydney and Siobhan, my wife at the time, was pregnant with our third, so we came back and um, initially I was fortunate through her father, my father-in-law, to get some part-time work through a job agency. So I was doing everything for like builders, labourer, Uh, driving a wee van, delivering pork to restaurants, those sorts of things. And then a job came up at Waimakariri District Council in Rangiora and uh, I applied and I got it and it was literally running their works horticulture park section. And um, yeah, it was really good. I ended up staying there 11 years, but in a really diverse range of roles from maintaining, you know, uh, community assets through to asset management, which I, by the way, I hate. Um, (laughs) And then into more about people engaging with community assets. Um, I had the title of District Recreation Advisor, which was kind of cool, allowed some sort of creativity within the role. But part of those jobs too, uh, through Australia, I met a guy, Thomas Biscuit Dunlop, uh, was his (laughs) name, that's fair thing, B-I-S-K-I-T, family name. 
And he was in a group called the Society for Growing Australian Plants and he was the one who really got me involved with nature, I guess, rather than those formal sort of park environments. So I wasn't just with councils when I was in Australia. I was with the Premier's Department and Parks and Wildlife. They have a Centennial Moor Park Trust, which is a really large park in the centre of Sydney. And there's lots of natural sort of environment within that. So that really got me engaged with birds and critters and things like that. So, yeah, fantastic. And that that was real, you know, sparked an interest, I think. And that's really where your focus has been up until sort of last year in your role at Te Kohaka, isn't that? Yes, so right. <laughs> I, I know I'm making a long sort of winded uh, effort at this, but I'm trying to lead from, so from the council, I then... I went to Environment Canterbury. I'm not a planner, by the way, but I was the regional parks planner for Environment Canterbury. And again, I go back to the fact that as a gardener, I have a really good capacity to think strategically and long term. And then in 2010, a role came up as general manager for a trust in North Canterbury called Te Kohaka or Tuhaitara, the nest of Tuhaitara. Uh, It was for some land, uh, 10.5 kilometres of coastline from the Waimakariri through to the Ashley Rakahuri where there was a freshwater lagoon which was returned um, as part of the uh, Naitahu settlement to Naitahu, uh, but of course with Naituahuriri, Mana Whenua, uh, hugely involved with it. And the trust uh, had a 200-year vision to restore uh, the lands, and I applied and fortunately I got it. And um, literally I've worked there up until I was appointed as a councillor in October 2022. Can you tell me a little bit about how working at Te Kohaka was different from other jobs that you might have had previously or how did it prepare you to then move into the ECAN role? Why did you choose to leave? You know, what? Tell me just a little bit more about that role because it's a bit unique compared to some of the other ones that you've been in. Yeah, it is. Um, but I think it probably first goes back to Waimakariri District Council where given that uh, Naituahuriri are based in Tuahiwi out in the Waimakariri district. You, you cannot but understand that that is, you know, significant uh, a significant cultural area. It's, you know, home base, I guess. And I was very fortunate to meet a number of people there who were very willing to share uh, their knowledge uh, networks and, and that really engaged me, I guess, with with things like uh, the concepts of Mātauranga Māori, which is, I mean, it, you hear it all the time now, but it genuinely is a different way of looking and learning and um, around your space that you take up. And I think the easiest way to explain it to people is that irrespective of what community around the world, you cannot be an intergenerational community if you do not understand the place that you live in. And I think that's what we've... We've forgotten that Māori have been here a lot longer than Pākehā and there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of the places where Māori live, for example, were because they could make use of the environment, they could live cohesively within the environment and a good example is the Kaiapoi Pā out at Wood End. You know, it was right on an estuary. It was fortified on three sides because of the natural environment you had a supermarket that was restocked twice a day with the tide coming in and out. So, you know, it just makes a lot of sense uh, for that. And, yeah, that, that really helped me when I was in Environment Canterbury as well. The co for Environment Canterbury was John O'Crofts, who I had 
a lot of time for. He was a very, very good man to me. We used to often stop and have coffee and muffins out on the riverbank and just <laughs> talk about his childhood, which was fantastic. I uh, was also fortunate for Hinari Raki Ihetau, Rick Toe, to give me some of his time. Uh, he was the original chair of uh, Te Kohaka or Tu Heitara Trust. You know, there's a real list of people I could put in there, but it gave me a different way of looking at things. And, you know, it's really interesting over the last year or two that obviously with an election coming up, there's been a real desire to disrupt. And Three Waters was disrupted because of the phrase co-governance. Mm. And, of course, that caused all sorts of consternation. Uh, what I can tell you, listeners, is there's nothing to fear. It's about accepting that people can look at things differently. And if we all took the time to look at things differently, we'd have much better solutions than um, certainly, in my view, where we've dragged along. And, and that- actually, can I just say, you know, I sort of my instinctive feeling was like, oh, I probably support Three Waters, but I just didn't really think about it or know anything about it, to be fair. It's just not something that I had gone out of my way to learn about. But I went to a PSA conference not that long ago, a few weeks ago, for local government delegates of the PSA in Wellington. And one of the workshops that we had to do in groups was just around understanding three waters. And the facilitator said, let's start off with some things around, like, what are the myths around three waters? It's now um, the affordable water um, reforms, isn't it? Something like that. (laughs) I should call it that. Um, What are some of the myths that we need to dispel for our members, you know, so that they can feel more comfortable in the way that their work is going to change or not change. But through that, the facilitator basically drew this really simple diagram, which was like explaining the governance structure that has been proposed, which is like, makes so much more sense and is so much less, you know, like race baity than people have on particularly the right or people with certain interests, conservative interests have made out like, can I elaborate on that in that? Please do. So I am a councillor for Environment Canterbury. I represent uh, Christchurch Central or Hawkeau. But the reason I got into that was about water. So prior to the three waters, I always struggled at uh, Tuhaitara Coastal Park in that it's a coastal park, so right on the Pacific Ocean. And some of the requirements, statutory requirements upon the trust, based through its reserve management plan, included protecting and enhancing freshwater in Mahingakai. And I used to say, how do you protect and enhance Mahingakai when gravity has brought it from the Southern Alps across the plains? And by the time it's reached the coast, anything that can be added to water or degraded or whatever it may be has occurred. Now, while we played a really important part in establishing coastal wetlands or enhancing them, there needed to be a way to, to do something with what was happening, and a lot of people know this, um, often going about the statistics of a 1.2 million uh, dairy herd in Canterbury, you know, an average of something like 25 litres a day. I think we're looking at 30 million litres of urine going on the ground a day alone. That's not looking at faecal matter. That's also not taking into account synthetic fertilisers and the like. So all of that is we extract this beautiful water that's taken, you know, millennia to be here and we extract it and we water it and dilute it and then we wash all of this stuff back in and it travels across the plains and and it's really degraded. So that made me really wild to the point where I thought, and I have to swear home, fuck them. Because again, going back to my age, I'm of the age where I could stop it. I'm a motorcycle rider. I could stop at any river and I could wash and swim and drink it and whatever. And 
that's a luxury that's not afforded to my children and it certainly won't be to their children. You know, I even took the opportunity uh, when I was still married to my my children's mum, we'd try to get away and camp and things like that beside rivers. And even then, you could see some sort of de- degradation, but nowhere near uh, what it is now. So that led me into how I'm here, you know, as an Environment Canterbury counsellor and my thing on water. But getting into the three waters, it's so simple. Water's not a privilege or whatever. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a right for any species that requires water on the planet. <laughs> you know what I mean? In, in, in its most simplified form, Three Waters was about drinking water, getting rid of water, and making sure that if you came home, your house wasn't going to be washed away. That's in its simplest form. There's a lot of nuance around it, and a lot of people don't tell you this. You know, neoliberals who sold all of the public assets that were owned by councils, um, especially during the 80s and 90s, because, you know, they weren't core council activities. You can see some sort of, you know, anger in the bottom of my voice there with a bit of luck because <laughs> I think it's appalling that that happened. But now um, how they run their balance sheet is they either loan money or they increase rates. Now that I'm a politician um, and we've just gone through uh, our draft annual plan, I know the pressure that's upon councils when it comes to lifting rates. You know, even for the, the rate of inflation, it still impacts people and especially now that we've got such a dichotomy, I guess, of the haves and the have-nots. But getting back to that, it's um, the balance sheet is about if you own $100 million worth of assets and that includes your water assets and you've loaned $50 million, you have a 50% debt-to-asset ratio, and then the Crown says, well, we're going to take those assets that you've got, not take them out of public ownership, but we're going to take those and we're going to put them into this agency or these collective that's going to be able to organise and manage the basic rights of people around water, all of a sudden the balance sheet doesn't look so good. You know, there might be $20 million worth of assets and all of a sudden you've only got $80 million worth of assets, but you've still got $50 million worth of debt. So it's a lot more expensive for local government to loan money. So there's one example of how nuanced it is. My understanding was that it was more expensive for many councils to manage these assets themselves. Yes. And so that's why they're being put into a, a broader agency. Yes, it is. But for the councils that have borrowed a lot of debt and run their organisation because they don't have any assets. So I'll give you an example. Environment Canterbury doesn't have many assets other than some land assets, which are usually for endowment purposes. So there's land at the Waimakariri that's leased out and the money that comes in goes towards river control of the Waimakariri. Their Christchurch City Council has the port company, uh, it has the airport, it has um, electricity. So it has a lot of um, subsidiaries through Christchurch Holdings and they are ways of generating revenue other than rates or loaning. So that's very helpful on your balance sheet. What I'm getting at is a lot of councils around the country don't have any other assets either. I see. So all of a sudden they're going, oh, they're taking our assets. They're taking our assets. It's like the fiction of the numbers on the page where it's, while they have the assets, that's offsetting some of the costs so it looks better That's right. what they're doing. Well, the great irony about things like pipes and the ground and that, they're an asset on your books, but they're actually a liability. Uh, You just have to look at Wellington and, you know, where you can have uh, two or three days where a road's out of action because the infrastructure's so old that it'll fall apart and there's a hole in the road, you know? And that's a bigger council and they can't afford to have their infrastructure together. Can you imagine 
Um, and I don't know, I, I apologise if Kaikohe, for example, and it just happens to be in the news at the moment, or some of those places in the far north where they don't have large numbers of people to be able to support, you know, infrastructure costs, etc. They have absolutely the same right as I do to be able to turn on a tap in the morning and also to flush a toilet. I was just going to say, so there's some really interesting themes that are coming out of this, which is around equity of access and also equity of responsibility so that it's not the burden for our water is not placed solely on certain people. Maybe that's a a dig at (laughs) some people who don't seem to be paying their fair share is what I'm sort of saying. So that kind of idea. Well, apparently uh, nobody owns water. That's why some people are getting their, what what I would uh, agree with you is more than their fair share. Yes. Uh, interesting co-option of that kind of, people often talk about socialism and stuff and it's like, oh, well, it's it's not owned. And it's like, well, it is by everyone. So it's commonly owned. That's the difference um, rather than no one. So therefore we can take out X amount of million litres for bottling or whatever it is because, oh, it's just anyone's. But what I was going to say as well is that, This infrastructure, you know, the environment, we're talking specifically about water, but anything, it doesn't adhere to those little neat packages of, you know, regional boundaries or things like that. As you were kind of saying with whatever would come down into the coastal wetlands at Te Kohaka, you kind of had to deal with environmentally what was happening upstream. But also the way that we need to manage these things is more strategic with that kind of like hundreds of year visions, these things are paid for over multiple generations. And, you know, this kind of talk then about, oh, no, we need to get rid of our debt and stuff is actually kind of a red herring because the debt is so long term, you know, it's not just to be paid off by us. It's so that future generations can enjoy, but also are responsible for that asset. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. It was interesting when you asked me about um, being interviewed and you sort of gave me some prompts about what I might like to think about or possible questions that come up. I'm sort of leaning now into the fact that we're starting to talk about infrastructure and the fact that public assets aren't necessarily seen um, as public assets. And this some of the issues around um, the new mayor of Auckland, for example, who is you know determined that he's going to be able to sell the airport shares to pay down debt. Now, debt's an insidious thing, um, and we've just gone through this period of time where banks have, you know, done the old bait and lure uh, set up where rates have been so low, they've been lending out to everyone, all in sundry, you know, with a bit of a proviso that, you know, this won't be like it forever, but it's sort of gone on. And because money is so easy to borrow, it's been easy for some of these bigger organisations to loan money as well. But eventually, at some stage, you do have to pay it back. I would suggest to you it's still better to be able to pay something back if you own assets that bring in money rather than just saying we're going to have to put it out on the backs of the ratepayer or taxpayer again. And um, I've heard it say, uh, Mangari, um, for example, uh, I heard one of the community board people saying, you know, these are public assets he's talking about getting rid of to write down debt. What happens in 10 years' time when we're back to having a lot of debt? Because unfortunately large organisations like Auckland are going to struggle because you'll have people that come in who are reluctant to put up rates. You know, you always hear these people come in and go, oh, you know, I'm not going to have any rates. But unless you're doing at least the inflation, you know, you're always behind. I have this real thing about um, the sale of public assets because, you know, like when I was a kid, education and health and transport and all of these big things, they were, the, the Crown ran them. 
Interestingly enough, I've had some discussions with people around some of the big roading and infrastructure assets. I mean, we've got stadiums and bits and pieces that have haven't come in on budget or there's been issues with design, etc. In the old days when we had a Ministry of Works, the Ministry of Works would do all of the design, they would do all of the quantity surveying, they would do all the pricing, and then they'd build the bloody thing, you know. And um, mm. if you look in Christchurch after the earthquakes, a number of the Ministry of Work buildings, like I think about the post office where C1 is, good old government building, <laughs> it's still there, yeah. you know, rock solid. <laughs> you know? What I'm going to do is, and this is... The peril of talking to a family member, I think, is that we've been talking for almost 40 minutes and we haven't really touched any of the questions that I said that I would ask you. We have sort of talked about how you you came to think and care about the environment, how you became an environment Canterbury councillor. I would like to know a little bit more about Environment Canterbury as a governing body. What is its relationship to the council, what does it administer? Who is it working with and what are its key responsibilities or what are they not, given your recent letter to the um, editor of the Christchurch well, Press? Can, you can talk about that. I can. But I guess just um, we hear about ECAN as a homeowner myself, I'm outing myself here as a class trader, but, um, you know, I pay rates. I don't know what they're for. I just know that these things exist. So maybe you could, you know, a, a dummy's guide to ECAN. Yeah, absolutely. So the largest part of ECAN's rating, if you like, is on public transport. So ECAN runs all of the services and uh, through contractors. Again, I think that should be publicly owned, but at the moment, so it runs all the services. The actual assets like depots and bus stops and that are actually local territorial authorities. So there's a bit of a so you know, Christchurch City Council. That's right. So, you know, that classic breakup of um, the 80s, 90s, thinking that the market and all of these people will make things a lot cheaper, but in fact it's made it more complicated. So that's a, ma- a large part of it. The other part is too that ECAN's responsible for things like regional rules, which determine on what you can and can't do through things like the Resource Management Act, clean air, so air is a really major part of it too. A lot of people don't realise that ECAN is actually the regional harbour master, so in all of the harbours, all of those navigational rules. Uh, It also has some obviously responsibility around the large braided rivers, flood protection, that type of thing. Interestingly, a lot of people don't realise the urban rivers like the Opawahu, Heathcote and the Avon Otakaro they're actually Christchurch City Council's responsibility for the for an urban environment. As I've got in there, the, you know, it's it's really interesting. There's a lot of difficulty with it because you're actually the rule setter. You're also the enforcer. So you're always on that no win. Oh, your rules are terrible. Oh, you don't enforce or you do enforce. I do have a lot of sympathy for the staff at Environment Canterbury simply because it is a difficult position to be in. Uh, you, you alluded to a letter that I wrote last week. Um, it was a, an unfortunate statement made by the chair of Environment Canary where I think it was fundamentally terrestrial biodiversity is not our job. Now that, to be fair, was in relation to adding another 0.5% onto rates uh, in the draft annual plan. For and, the purposes of protecting biodiversity. Well, it was actually or? adding some um, funding so that community co- groups who are carrying out work around the environment and biodiversity could apply. And I think I personally voted for it. It mm-hmm. was beaten. But the chair was sort of explaining at the time that that's why he couldn't support it because it was fundamentally not our job. I wrote a letter to the editor of the Christchurch Press because I felt as the chair of the Regional Biodiversity and Biosecurity Committee 
that was not the case. We have a very good regional biodiversity strategy, which was developed, I think, about not quite 15 years ago. And that's with all the local TAs, the regional council, the Department of Conservation, Federated Farmers, all sorts of um, organisations and NGOs. And it's a great document. And it started out really well. And of course, it's unfortunately taken a back seat while the commissioners were in place. So that's another role that we have. And in fact, Environment Canterbury does a lot of work around biodiversity um, and biosecurity. Heavily involved with the wilding pine, wallabies, as far as biosecurity goes. Other things Wallabies? Yeah, yeah. We have a a pretty bad wallaby problem down in South Canterbury. And in fact, it's probably region-wide and actually further because a number of them have been moved out of the zone by what I would consider fairly reckless people. Yeah, so, you know, there's all manner of things from a biosecurity perspective. Um, one that we're starting to look at, like, very seriously uh, with Ngāti Whiki, uh, Rāpaki, and with Biosecurity New Zealand is the Mediterranean fanworm, which has um, been found in Littleton Harbour. It's been there for a while, and that has the ability to really decimate um, a lot of our seafloor, be- you know, seabed areas, especially in, in the likes of uh, Whakarōpō, uh, Littleton Harbour. Um, but from a biodiversity perspective, some of the most clever people, ecologists, environmentalists um, that I know, in fact, are staff at Environment Canterbury and work heavily in the protection of um, areas and species alongside, you know, the likes of Department of Conservation. But having said that, we're probably most reliant on the average person in the region. Mm. We have huge, huge numbers of people associated either as individuals or as collectives or as societies or trusts carrying out uh, work for biodiversity, biosecurity. I hope I've kind of covered everything. Well, maybe not everything, but Environment Canterbury is basically the living environment, I guess. You know, air, water, uh, land. How we how manage we mo- it, how we... Move people around. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of work being done, obviously, with the Greater Christchurch Strategy. That's in conjunction with the likes of uh, Selwyn, Christchurch and yep. Waimakariri. I guess what I would like to talk about now, uh, I've only got a couple of questions really left. One more around environmental stuff, which is what are the key issues as far as you're concerned and what should people do? It's my belief the most pressing things are saving what we have left now and I relate to things like, you know, native biota. Um, I think about water, the security of water. I think about food resilience and um, safety We've just had this massive cyclone sort of series up in the North Island, which has taken out some really, really important land up there. And of course, we've been doing all we can to turn Canterbury into a big paddock. And uh, in fact, I I would argue quite strongly that we are less resilient uh, when it comes to food security now than we used to be prior to the dairy boom. So it's really about trying to consolidate what's left and then work towards um, restoring, rehabilitating an equitable share too of resource, I think is really important. I think that um, some of the things that uh, Environment Canterbury have done really well, I mean, clean air, clean air is one of the things that I look to. I, I remember as a kid, I'd go to sports training and everyone would be burning coal. You know, there was sports the, training. Well, no, what I'm getting at is in a winter's night, you'd be oh, at training. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, what are they doing? Well, I may as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, you'd be at sports training and there'd be everyone would have a fire on and the, he- the air would be heavy with um, coal smoke and particulate. 
And that's something that we've got to really be thankful. Our environment Canary did some really strong work on that. In fact, you can still have a combustible burner, but it has to be one of the most modern types so that you're actually reducing that particulate and contribution of pollution to the air. The other things we need to be thinking about is um, probably even more important is adaptation to climate change. The reality is we've put ourselves outside of nature rather than recognising we are a part of nature. And, you know, there is some hope, I think, about offering nature-based solutions for some of the issues that we have. Uh, I, I strongly believe we need to have the courage to say to people in vulnerable spots, especially along coastlines, you can't be here. And if you choose to be, you know, that's on you, but we can no longer support this type of thing. And that's tragic. But again, we we have to be mindful that we can't put people at risk and neither do we have the ability to be able to just sort of go, you know, everybody just move over here. We're all going to put you here. We we need to be really planning and managing this well. But, um, you know, time is short and we've seen that with the consequences of these um, climate uh, events in the North Island. So those would be the biggest issues, I think. Now, what can people do? I hate people who go, oh, I don't vote because what's the point? You know, they're all the same. Um, we're not all the same. I have only been a councillor for six or seven months and I've had plenty of rows with, <laughs> with people around the table and that's not a bad thing. Um, what it shows is there is some diversity of thought around the table. That's very diplomatic way of putting things. Well, they're wrong. It's a real politician in there. Well, they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> no, I, uh, but, but again, I, what I have to recognise is that I like to think I'm there. I, I actually, I'm really pleased. I got the most number of votes in the electorate. So about 10,500 people voted for me. And I didn't letterbox drop and door knock like other people, but I hope that the body of work that I have available to people is such that people can go, yeah. So one of the things that I have or am known as is, is being vocal. And um, I'm very strong in my opinion. And that's why people have me there. And and when you are strong in your opinion, you do ruffle people. And I don't intentionally go out to antagonise, well, not <laughs> maybe once or twice, but generally I don't go out to antagonise people. But I, I have a line that I, I am responsible to hold. And not only is it a moral line that I hold, and I'm not a moral person by the way, that sounds silly. You're not you know, there have, for I'm your not morals. There. Yeah, that's right. I'm not there to, to be looked at as, oh, isn't he wonderful? I'm, I'm there to hold this line and for me, it's really important that I stand on the on the things that I believe that people voted me in there for. So, yeah. So what can you do? You can engage. That's the most important thing. When there's consultation, put your two bobs worth in. You may, you may feel like they don't listen or whatever it may be. There's a really good um, bit at the moment. I'm actually thinking about not going to Environment Canterbury but going to Christchurch City Council this week simply because they are talking about uh, some of the cycleways. And again, really short-sighted in my view, if you're talking about removing a cycleway, given that we know that we need to remove our reliance upon fossil fuel transport. So the more people who want to get on push bikes, the, the more we, we should be supporting that. The more people who want to get onto buses, we should be supporting that. Doesn't mean everyone's going to do that tomorrow or next week or the week, but we have to have that network of um, opportunity in place in order to be able to have that taken up as time goes by. Cool. And I know you've been on to me at 
to submit. Well, that's a basically. really I know that the windows have sort of closed now. Well, that's for the annual plan, but the long term plan. That's just about to commence. So over the next sort of year, there'll be some really intense opportunity for the community to say, what do we want? What do we want over the next 10 years? And that's where you need to put in. You need to be really vocal about what you think are important for your community, who you are. I think that's a a worthwhile thing for CSS to consider as as we develop and we have a presence all over the country. It gives us a little bit more room to start looking locally and spending a bit more time on what we need to do here and so perhaps supporting people to get involved in that process as part of it. But Can I just mention that's probably the first time the word uh, socialism came I up. I know. Well, that's what I'm going <laughs> to ask now. That Initially that was my first question, but it's now going to be the closing question. So I would like you to tell me, you've sort of indicated that there's some diversity of opinion on you know, um, among councillors at ECAN and as there is in all, all governments. But could you tell me a bit about the various politics that are represented by councillors? What the kind of split, I'm not asking you to name names, but can you tell me, you know, there's this sort of contingent and this opinion that's represented and this is where I sit and I would like to hear about your politics um, specifically. I'd like you to summarise everything you've kind of talked about from your childhood through to the work that you're doing now in terms of your understanding of socialism. Are you a socialist? Is that something that you carry through into your work as a counsellor? Okay. Well, I'll, a lot of questions. Do your best. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll have a crack. Um, there are various opinions from left socialism uh, around the table to neoliberalism. There's a mix of people that believe that we are overtaxed, we are overrated, we are overregulated, and if you just leave people alone, they'll get on with what they want to do. Most of those, I would suggest to you, are intergenerational farming people. Conversely, we've got people who, we've got a new New Zealander, for example, who is extremely committed to a better way of living, if you like, a more fairer, equitable way of sharing resource and opportunity. Uh, and I have a lot of time, and, and in fact that aligns very closely with my view. We have a number of people who I guess can mix and match, some that are, have a real environmental... Ballet rights, you mean? <laughs> well, we have had a few people abstain. Uh, I personally have a problem with people who abstain. Uh, you should have an opinion on all, unless it's... Uh, really beyond your... Yeah, beyond your... your I mean, there's nothing wrong with abstaining if you go, I just don't get it or I don't understand or I don't really, you know. But, um, yeah, we don't have people who do that regularly, but we do have people that um, support the ideology of groups and there are people who are fiercely independent in their view. I Hopefully I'm seen as that sort of person. Interestingly, the first council meeting went down to a literally picking a name out of a hat to be chair because it was split 8-8. It's happened twice, but generally as a rule, most things are heavily debated. And the beauty about, like I'm a, I'd consider myself a social democrat in that, you know, I've never lived in any other regime other than a supposed democracy. And I think um, if you vote, you know, you lose your vote, you don't vote. Sorry, you lose your vote or you get your vote, at least you've had an opportunity to vote. Um, As long as there's a fair opportunity to be able to debate issues, I think it's really important. Am I a socialist? I'm not an erudite by any stretch of the imagination. I, I 
just so your listeners know, I did finally go on and get a degree. I've never really studied Marx or um, Trotsky or uh, or Lenin or anyone really, um, but I think I am. I think I know the value of a collective working together for the betterment of that collection of people. And what I get at is I talk earlier on, I talked about the Ministry of Works or the, you know, like when I was a kid, you got health and, you, you know, you got you got all those things. Minimum standards of Yeah, living. that's right. I remember too how I've been sort of um, modelled, I guess, is based a lot on my childhood, as is nearly everyone. We were pretty poor. Um, you know, I shoes had caps on them when I went through the toes and things passed on and that, that type of thing. I, you know, um, I, but I was very thankful that I was supported by either the government or whether it be, um, you know, people from the community supporting me as a, a, a kid. We could never afford the stationery, for example, at the start of school. So when it was allocated, you know, there'd be two or three of us in the class wouldn't get our stationery because we hadn't been able to afford them. But eventually, you know, after a week or so, we'd get them because they'd been, um, you know, I guess they had a count up at the end of the the end of the session and sort of said how many people, you know, didn't get them or couldn't afford them. You know, I went to a health camp twice in the late 60s and early 70s. I had two spells in Glen Elk Health Camp. You know, that was obviously a really important time for me. Again, that was... Is that like respite care? Yeah, it is really for, for, for kids. Yeah, the whole, you know, health camps are the sort of, you know, kids might be struggling physically or emotionally, that type of thing. But it was the state having an opportunity to sort of support vulnerable people. And I know that's a, a difficult thing that uh, has, you know, I mean, there's never really been a right answer, but certainly my my thoughts back to that time were, were good. It was a really important part of my life. So I think I am a socialist. It's interesting. I played rugby league out at Hallswell. That gave me an opportunity to to see, because you know, I, I think it'd be fair to say demographically uh, more Maori and Pacific Islander, and that collective wider community. You know, lots of people would come to the game. Lots of people would, would engage after the game. We had lots of social events and occasions where lots of families would get together. And I don't see that as being sort of any different than having that sort of social state. I think you know I'm also a founding member of the Sydney Socialist and Motorcycle Enthusiast Society. Uh, that's like I make light of that. And we're not like the Canterbury Socialist Society, but fundamentally we're a collective of people who have been heavily involved with unionism or we generally most of us have motorcycles or at some stage have. But we're also, uh, we like to talk politics. We like to talk about inequity. We like to write letters to the editor to at least put our opinion forward on things that we think are, are good or not so good. Maybe kind, of, kind of like the men said. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a little bit. Uh, it'd be fair to say, though, we, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I think uh, people who identify as older males with white hair, there's probably a few of them, we're not really a group that um, has subscriptions or bits and pieces. We're more of a, a social group who likes to talk politics, who likes yep. to ride motorcycles and get together. Uh, that's probably what it's about for me. Awesome. I really appreciate this conversation. There's been lots in it that while I've known the broad brushstrokes of all of this stuff, it's been really nice to actually just sit down and talk about it um, and definitely some stuff about Environment Canterbury that I feel more equipped to learn about and think about. So that's good. Is there anything else that you want to add before I get you to recommend a song. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And I just hope that 
uh, we're in a, a, a tenuous spot within, you know, geopolitical environment. We're also in a very tenuous spot as far as the physical environment. And I would say to people, don't feel depressed or don't feel that you don't have anything or opportunity to do anything because collectively, as a mammal, we're pretty amazing species. And to quote, um, I'm a mad science fiction fan, um, you know, if we could channel that for good, not evil, I think we could have a lot better, just, fairer world that could be supporting us as a species and everything else that exists as an intergener- on an intergenerational basis. And again, thank you for the opportunity. Amazing, thank you. So tell me about, finally, the song that you've chosen. It's very, very difficult to put a name to a song. Uh, I did think, uh, you know, like uh, anything socialist, it's very hard not to have a, a, you know, Billy Bragg at the back of your your mind or um, some of those uh, North of England bands. But I've gone for an American who I took my eldest daughter to the concert last (laughs) time. He was, this was just pre-earthquake. Uh, at the Christchurch Town Hall, and it's Raikuda, and the song I'm going is a Vigilante Man. Well, I ramble around from 
listening and if you want to find out more you can find us on facebook as the canterbury socialist society or visit our website at www.canterburysocialistsociety.org.nz thank you and until next time take care